Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. That's complex. Providing young people with the knowledge, the tools they need to stay safe on the road. Go down to your child's school and teachers have tattoos and piercings in the bank. Anywhere you go. Restaurants are not making vast profits. Pay our suppliers, staff, and we pay our bills. And there's very little left out of that. Join the conversation. Call 0818 969696. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 PJ Coogan. It's a nice morning out there now. Uh, not bad morning at all. It was a wild night. Now, Storm Isha seems to Isha. Is it Isha, Isha, or Aisha? They're calling it different things in different places. I'm going to go with Isha, I think. But if anybody wants to correct me, they can. But it was wild last night. Very wild. But Kerry seems to have done a lot worse than us. Galway, Mayo, up the northwest of the country. Donegal got a, a fair old battering. There were trees down. There was a tree down up in the Sun, Sun Valley Drive. And trees up, off, up and down the country. It's been a bad one. But I think we here in Cork did escape the very worst of storm. Isha, David Joyce is Director of Services with Cork City Council. David, am I right? Did we escape the worst? Good morning to you. Morning, PJ. Morning to your listeners. Um, yes, you're correct. It was a very, very wild night last night. Um, well, we did escape the worst of it. We didn't escape all of it, unfortunately. I can confirm that between the city's fire department and our call crews, we attended over 50 different incidents across the, the city last night from tea time till early this morning. And the main issue was trees down, obviously. A lot of trees were damaged over, over overnight. Um, and also there was a house in Blarney where there was some significant roof damage that we attended as well. Yeah. The, the commonly trees down in this, were they in the city or out the county or where were they? Both, mainly in the suburban areas, but there was some done around the city as well, a small number done around the city. Uh, and I suspect there's a lot of debris on the roads and footpaths, smaller branches, and other debris that might have been uh, blown around overnight. So we would ask people who are going out this morning, especially vulnerable road users like pedestrians and cyclists, uh, to be very aware of your surroundings and also more for us to make sure that you drive with due to care and attention this morning. The one thing we didn't want after the, the events of October and November was more flooding. Did we get any? No, we didn't. Um, we're at present in a neap tide situation, which are normal low tides. So the storm surge that we did experience from Storm Isha didn't cause any tidal flooding. Uh, and again, from a major river flooding perspective, we were not predicting any and none happened. There may have been some small, very, very localised flooding in, in areas whereby debris may have blocked the culvert to block the river course, but we're not aware of any significant flooding issues anywhere across the entire city. Now, if anybody has something today, David, that they think needs to be reported... How would they go about doing it? 
Well, uh, I'm going to give you a number of numbers if you wouldn't mind, PJ. Yes. So if you come across an emergency situation, um, we would suggest that you immediately call the emergency services on 999 okay. or 112. But if you come across a situation, for example, fallen debris close to a footpath that isn't causing an immediate danger that needs to be removed, you could call Cork City Council's customer service unit on 021-492-4000. That's 021-492-4000. Okay. okay. So, and, and that would be anything that doesn't, doesn't look like an immediate threat to, to life or safety. So, yes. So if you're coming around the blind corner and you see a tree across the road blocking, that's an emergency situation. It should be reported as an emergency. But if you see trees down in green areas and parks or if you see small bits of debris that need to be cleared up, please report them to our customer service unit. They'll be put onto our call log and we'll get to them as soon as we possibly can. We'll talk about um, electricity later with Jim out at ESB, but it, quite a number of people were affected by, by, by lack, lack of power overnight. There was there was a number of uh, both uh, homes, uh, residential properties, and uh, businesses, and I'm aware of one or two schools as well. But my understanding is the vast vast majority of those, if not all of them, are back up this morning. The SB, as usual, have done a tremendous uh, amount of work over overnight. Yeah, you had crews out yourselves overnight, had you, David? <laughs> We did, as I said, we between our own crews, our response crews in drainage and roads uh, and parks, we had uh, our fire department out and between them all they attended well more than 50 calls last night, uh, mainly clearing debris out of the way so that when people get up this morning, uh, their commute to work would not be impacted. Alright David, thank you and if anybody wants to get in touch with Cork City Council, that's David Joyce, Director of Services 4924000 It's an 021 number 4924000 if you spot a tree down in a place that doesn't constitute a threat to anybody's safety, but if you should come around the corner and find a tree down across the road, then that's an emergency situation, call 999 or 112. But the number to report something to the council, and use your, use your noggin, use your common sense, the number to report something to the council, 4924000. Now on Friday, once again, Alan O'Reilly called this the northwest of the country battered, but we got a fair doing over as well. It's lovely this morning, Alan. Are we out out of trouble? Good morning, Alan O'Reilly. Good morning. Well, certainly some sunny spells today, but some heavy showers as well. Wind still pretty windy today, but nothing like we saw yesterday. But it will be a very windy, breezy day. The winds will ease off tonight but they'll pick up again tomorrow even, I'm afraid. We have another system coming close to the West Coast, but not as close and not as powerful as Dharmisha, but it will still be very windy again tomorrow evening and tomorrow night. Was Isha as fierce as you had feared? Yeah, I think pretty much. Um, like, it was it was always going to be hard to get the exact details, and we don't have weather stations everywhere, but going by the reports that we have, and I think the fact that if you look at the power check um, map this morning, it shows that there was strong winds right across most of the country, and Clue Bay, a private station, Mayo Sailing Club on Clue Bay, uh, recorded a gust of 150 kilometres an hour. So, you know, that is significant wind speed. But even, you know, uh, 137 at Nace Head, 133 at Mallon Head, and Roaches Point even saw red level sustained winds for a time on the south coast yesterday as well. So, no, it was a it was a nasty storm, and, it, and unfortunately, it has brought about a lot of damage and a lot of power outages and a lot of broadband outages as well. The broadband doesn't get as much of a mention, but it's nearly as bad these days as as when the power goes. Given it's the way the country runs on broadband, it, you, you you're right. You wouldn't hear. Me. There was a tornado warning at one point. Did we get tornadoes? 
Yeah, so Toro in the UK issued um, a tornado watch, which basically, look, it's very hard to pinpoint these. But there is reports coming from the County Loud yesterday evening that, that that's kind of support the thought that there was a tornado possibly in that area. So I had a few reports of people with very sudden winds, lots of trees down, lots of damage in a small area. Um, the radar shows very intense um thunderstorm at that time the lightning strikes are detected as well so there is a possibility that there was a tornado in loud um at that time but thankfully there's doesn't seem to have been anybody hurt or any major damage other than trees um so i think we might have escaped that one but it was it was particularly rough and i think there was a there was a lot of people worried about that but look these are things that can happen but they're very small generally yeah. um and they're impossible to forecast in layman's language ian what are big pardon uh, alan what constitutes a tornado how does it happen what causes them because they're frightening things to look at they are, yeah. So the tornado, the main the main difference about tornado is the rotation. So to get to kind of classify it as a tornado, you have to have rotating. Um, so basically, you will see kind of you know some of the videos where things get whipped up into the air, and that's what one person described to me, where the water in the puddles was lifted up out of the water um, and into the air. So you you get a rotating column of of um, wind basically that comes down and then goes up, and you get these during thunderstorms um they they basically form when you get a supercell so they're not they're not as large as what we see in the US or that but mm. they're still significant enough and they can do a lot of damage as we've seen a few of them in the last uh, 6 to 12 months yeah there was a few trampolines went for a flight last night and i think there was a, there was a was it you carried the picture on your socials there was a shed uh, turned over out in ovens Yes, there was. Yes, um, I think Cork Safety Alert said that, and I reshared it. It was um, there was a lot of lot of trampolines. Unfortunately, I always say it, um, but still, and it's it's always the ones with the netting up. If you notice in the picture, uh, PJ, it's always the ones that leave the netting on them because mm. if you take the netting down, at least it, it it helps. But one of them ended up on the roof of a house. So I'd love to know how they managed to get that one back down. Yeah, I mean the netting is basically a sail. Like take the thing down. <laughs> That's it, exactly. That's it, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, nice and calm today. It's an, quite a nice morning here in Cork. There's more to come, but nothing as bad again for a while, I would think. Hopefully, anyway. No, not as bad as that, but it will be windy again today. But, yeah, very wet again tomorrow morning, unfortunately. And as I said, tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow evening, getting windy, and tomorrow night's very windy. Now, the south of the country will miss the worst of that one, so you won't be as bad down there. It is more the northwest again that will take the brunt of it. Um, but there is there is certain likely to be some very wet and windy again tomorrow. Wednesday is a better day, so if you have something to do outdoors um, and you're not sure about doing it today or tomorrow, Wednesday is the better day. Well, that might be a day to get the get the trampoline down off the roof. Alan, thank you, Alan O'Reilly of uh, Carlo Weather. Now, Jim Herndon is divisional manager at ESB in Wilton. We, we didn't do as badly as other parts of the country, Jim, but we do have power outages. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. We do. Um, I think we, we started to take damage, really, as Alan was saying there, uh, from early afternoon yesterday. Now, at our worst uh, in the southwest, we had about 23,000 customers off. Uh, that was reduced to about 9,500 overnight, PJ. And if I come to Cork, then at the moment, we've got about 2,000 customers out across, give or take, about 70 fault locations. So 70 different um, outage sites, effectively. 
lot of work to be done there. Have you got the crews out? We have the crews out. We had the crews out yesterday afternoon. They would have worked right into the worst of it where it was safe to do so uh, up until late last night. And uh, our on-call people would have been on right through the night. Um, but the bulk of our crews are back out since half the, six this morning, assessing damage and already repairing and restoring. So I would certainly expect that those faults we're aware of in Cork at the moment, uh, PJ, the vast bulk of those will have powered back by this evening. Can you localise where the worst is in Cork at the moment? Yeah, of of the 70, the bigger ones are, and this, this is really a scatter across the county, but the bigger of the outage locations at the moment, PJ, are Mallow, Fermoy, uh, Mitchellstown, if I come back in then, Castle Lines, Carrick Tool, uh, east of the county, Mogili, Ahada, uh, closer to the city then, Riverstown, Glenmire, uh, Monkstown, an outage in Ballancolig as well. And then maybe if I skirt over the, the, the northern suburbs, kind of Tower, Blarney, okay. um, pretty much a circle then, then Ballinagree and Coachford. Pretty so pretty much yeah, a there are smaller the ones, but those are the main, you know. Okay, okay. And you'd hope, you'd hope to have most people back by this evening, Jim. I would expect so. We've, we've good weather, as you said, at the moment for our repair crews and for restoration works. Um, so unless we take something in, in terms of additional damage later this evening, PJ, I'd be very optimistic that um, mm. everything we have on the books at the moment should be back by this evening. If anybody comes across something that you are not aware of, like a fallen power line or something, words of advice? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and keep clear and uh, dial it in to us on one 800 Three seven two nine nine nine. Absolutely, that, and we will prioritise those. Our, our triage always uh, prioritises any of those danger calls ahead of everything else. You can't stress it enough, can you? Never try to fix this yourself. Oh no, absolutely not. And even if you're in doubt as to whether it's ESB networks or Aircom network or anything else, uh, stay well clear, dial it in. We will get people out who will identify and make safe. All right, thank you very much, Jim, and uh, thank you for the work that you and your crews are doing. Jim Hernan, who's Divisional Manager of the ESB at Wilton, 1800-372-999 is the number. If you see a line down anywhere, don't make the judgment for yourself that that's only a phone line or it's only something that's just pick up the phone and ring them one eight hundred three seven two nine nine nine. That's what they do. In terms of the council, if you spot anything down like a tree or any kind of damage that you think they should know about, four nine two four thousand or two one four nine two four thousand. And if you spot anything that would constitute an emergency or you think might be an emer- or if you're even in doubt of whether something is an emergency or not. 999R112 and report it in. Connecting to the big show. Listen to Cork's 96FM while you work. While you work. Listen live at 96fm.ie. Word came through on my phone. Initially, it came from the Southern Star news people that Ian Bailey had collapsed in the street in Bantry, in Barrick Street in Bantry. And it wasn't looking good for him because by the time that alert was up, he had been unresponsive, according to eyewitnesses, for 20 minutes. And I, I happened to mention it here in our own WhatsApp group. It didn't look good for him. Um, and Ian, Ian Bailey passed away yesterday afternoon. He was pronounced dead not long after that happened. In fact, I spoke twice to Ian Bailey uh, last autumn. Spoke in September and I spoke in October. In September, he had 
been admitted to Bantry Hospital. He spoke to me from Bantry Hospital after having not one but two heart attacks in the course of a couple of days. He'd been stabilised and he'd been told at that stage that he had a serious heart condition that would need treatment over the months to come. And I spoke to Ian Bailey from his hospital bed about that experience of two heart attacks and did he know his health was that bad and and all of that. But we spoke, as you would do, we spoke about the Sophie Toscan Duplantier case. Do you ever think of... Sophie's family, and you, you you say you want the answer. Well, I, 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 I'm very, very sympathetic to them. Um, the thing about Sophie's family was they were assured very early on in the investigation. Um, the Irish police knew who had murdered her, and that person was me. So they bought a false narrative, and I can understand um, you know their point of view, and of course their own legal system in France added to that in 2019 by convicting you. Well, the thing, the thing about French law is basically, if you're accused of a crime, you're guilty. It, it's quite the opposite of our common yeah. law. Yeah, your solicitor, Mr. Bottomer, has explained that to me more than once. I may tell you, but I felt I had to ask you the question anyway. Now, that hangs over you too, I suspect, Ian, that you have this conviction, yes, in another legal system, yes, in a legal system completely different to ours, but you still have this conviction hanging over you. I, I do, yeah, and, you know, it's not a nice thing. No, nobody would want that. And, uh, and look, my, my, my hope and prayer has always been that the truth would come out. My hope and prayer is that before I'm dead and gone, the truth will come out. And the truth is that I have nothing to do with this terrible crime. I was about to ask you that to finish. It's your earnest hope before you go to meet your maker that you go mm. to meet your maker as a man cleared of suspicion. That would be your dream, wouldn't it? It would go a long way to putting a big smile on my face, I can tell you. That was the second last interview I did with Ian Bailey. I'll give you a clip from the last one in a little while. But let me go to Paul Byrne, Southern correspondent with Virgin Media News and indeed occasional presenter of this here programme. Paul, you're there. You're, you're one of the one of us that was there since since day one. I answered the telephone call from Eddie Cassidy to the newsroom here at 96FM on the 23rd of December 1996. I answered that call telling me there'd been a murder in West Cork. You go back that far as well, don't you? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Can you hear me? Indeed, I can. Yeah. Far away, loud and clear. Yeah, PJ, um, I, I wasn't on it from day one. Uh, I came to it a, a number of years later, I suppose. Basically, I came to this story when Ian Bailey took on a number of newspapers. He took them, he sued them for defamation. He accused the newspapers of labelling him as the murderer. And that was played out in the courthouse on Camden Quay. Uh, over a period of a number of weeks. What initially started as a libel defamation trial really ended up being uh, a murder trial, if you want, because mm-hmm. the accusations and the allegations that were made during this trial were sensational. Um, you had people giving information that Ian Bailey had confessed to the murder. He denies doing so. He said anything he said was always black humour. 
Um, I suppose he had a very strange and dark sense of humour. It was nothing to joke about. A woman had lost her life, but he maintained always that he was innocent and everyone was picking him up incorrectly. Incidentally, he lost the case against the newspapers. Uh, he went back to court again for the second time and he threw in the towel shortly after, afterwards and uh, gave up in, in, the, in the fight against the papers. Mm. What did you make of him over the years, Paul? You, I mean, you met him, you met him many times, as did I. What did you make of him? An extremely complex character, uh, a very intelligent man. However, intelligent he was, he was somewhat very foolish because of the things that he would be saying. And he really did leave himself wide open to people labelling him as the man who killed Sophie Tusk on the Plantier. I know guards will say that the evidence points to him from day one. Um, I think if that evidence was there, he would have been tried by now. But a very um, intelligent man, complex character, droll sense of humour, dark sense of humour, and for the, as we'd say in Cork, at times, certainly not the full shilling. <laughs> I, as I said, I interviewed him many times. I met him a few more times. Unusually for a man who was in the spotlight, for all the possible negative reasons a man could be in the spotlight, he never refused an interview, ever. He did for many, many years. I, I think I was one of the first people to interview him for television. And uh, we built up, I suppose, a working relationship during the libel trial in Camden Key and the subsequent trial in Washington Street. Um, he shunned the media. But then after that, once he started talking to the media, you will often hear the word a media whore. And he, he, he courted publicity. There were times that he would ring you to say, I happen to be in Cork, or I'm doing this in West Cork, if you're around and I'm available for interview. But I think he also saw it as an opportunity to try and get his point of view across that he was, in, well, that he maintains that he was an innocent man. Um, but again, he did shy away from the media initially, but then afterwards he mm. became... Um, some fella said to me recently he was a thorn in his side, that he would ring him so often, asking this particular reporter, do you need anything? Do you want me to comment? Uh, it's coming up to this anniversary or that anniversary. I'll say something if you wish. Yeah, I had a few texts like that from him as well over the years once mobile numbers were exchanged. Paul, thank you very much. Paul Byrne, Southern Correspondent, Virgin Media News. The last interview that Ian Bailey gave to this radio station anyway uh, I'm not sure if he gave any subsequently to other radio stations. He probably did because he gave a lot in the latter years of, of his life, was in October of 2023, when he was back in hospital again after another bit of a scare, and he'd been told that he would need surgery, he would need stents, and that at the time he wasn't strong enough for the surgery. And we spoke again on the opinion line. My great concern is that I'd like the truth to come out i.e. I had nothing to do with this terrible crime before I'm dead and gone. You know, they, I have this sort of, this condition, this heart condition that comes on me, and it's got quite frightening. And, and you know, they said I was quite lucky to survive. Mm. You and I have spoken a number of times. I've always enjoyed our conversations. If it was a thing that this was the last opportunity we ever had to speak to each other, Ian, what would you say if this is well, the last I'm time we ever get to talk? Well, I just reiterate everything I said before, really, that I had nothing to do with it. 
it would just be nice for myself and other people, including my ex-partner, if this could be established who, you know, who it was. Mm. Who, who made it. And it's quite an interesting thing as we speak, and we have to be careful about these matters. You notice that there was a man arrested last night near Cork City, and you notice that man's name did not appear in the media. Did, did you notice that? Yes, I did. And now when my, when my name, when I was arrested on the first occasion, my name was all over the media. You I know, remember that what, very well. And that's what led to a lot of the, you know, difficult situations that I had to deal with. Mm-hmm. Ian, I hope that your heart settles down and I hope that you'll be uh, fit and able for the surgery. I wish you well and Thank perhaps you. we will speak again. Slán. And that was the last time I spoke to Ian Bailey. He did send me a, a text wishing me Happy Christmas, incidentally. I'm sure he probably sent out a load of them. Um, 0818969696. Now, Frank Bottomer has represented Ian Bailey for many, many years and uh, joins me now. Frank, um, did you become friendly with him over the years? Good morning. Morning, PJ. Uh, Professionally friendly, I'd say, yeah, with a, with a kind of a, a, a kind of a, <laughs> a hybrid, from you know starting out as his solicitor, yeah, dealing with whatever it is that I had to deal with, and then because I suppose we were uh, involved in a lot of these kind of things over the time, I would have had perhaps more contact with him uh, than you know the normal circumstance. So yes. We wouldn't have socialised or anything, but there were so many times that we spoke to each other that I suppose the the connection sort of went past ordinary professional contact to straying in towards friendship and that hmm. hybrid sort of. What was the? When was the last time you spoke to him, Frank? About a week after Christmas. Uh, he rang me, we had a bit of banter about something, but he, the actual purpose of his call was just to tell me how he was. He, w- he would contact me quite regularly. Sometimes I'd see calls coming in from at all sorts of times and I wouldn't be able to take them for other reasons to do with work or family or something. So to my regret now, I would maybe not always have been able to get back to him. And the last communication I had from him was a very, very uh, sad, actually, um, voicemail that he left on my WhatsApp, which was stunningly prescient when I listened back to it yesterday after I had heard about his death, where he was telling me about his impending death and uh, just asking me a couple of questions about a couple of things, which I... I much regret that I just didn't get back to the guy, and but I have the, I have the voice WhatsApp anyway to mm. <laughs> just to remind me of him, you know. So I, I sense Frank that you liked him. I did, yeah. I liked him. I did like him, yeah. He was a likable fellow, in a way that people might not have realised. I also appreciate that some people would have regarded him as. Dislikable. Uh, he he always had that dual situation. But I spent so much time with him, PJ, over the years. Like all the cases between the uh, libel appeals, which Paul Byrne wrongly attributed as him losing, he actually had some success in those. But I don't want to keep your listeners waiting too. That was the first case I did from us. Those libel appeals, they were actually settled 
and he received something along the lines of uh, an acknowledgement that he had been wronged. But so, like, I was in, in and out with with that. I was in and out with the, you know, the, the case we took against the state, which was, you know, that big long production, which I, I think, other than. You know, not rewriting history. I've read several timelines this morning, Frank, and I'm still trying yeah. to get my own memory around it. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then we had all the up and down to Dublin for the extraditions. So I spent vast numbers of hours with Ian Bailey, you know, just sitting in a car driving to Dublin or something. He's a very engaging fellow. Even when I'm sitting in the car with him and I want to listen to the radio or listen to some music, the guy would keep on talking. He talked a lot, you know, sometimes, and I've said it in other you know, shows over the years, actually. God above, sometimes you think, would you ever just shut up and you know, just get get away from it? But no, nah, he, he couldn't. He was actually uh, quintessentially English as well, by the way. You know, and we must we must remember Ian was an Englishman <laughs> uh, living in Ireland. He adored Ireland. It's a funny kind of a thing, like what Ireland did to him is unconscionable in many ways. But yet he stayed here, even before that extradition stuff kicked off in 2008, 9, 10. He stuck with us. He liked us. He liked us as a people. If an Irishman in England had suffered what he has suffered as an Englishman in Ireland, you'd imagine that there would be uproar over here for an Irish citizen to be treated in the way that, you know, I believe he was treated over here. But no, he stuck with us, Mm. stayed in West Cork, you know, all that kind of stuff. So he liked Ireland, but he was quintessentially English accent, the whole lot, the stiff off her lip, as somebody was mentioning there. Oh, yes, for goodness sake, and all this kind of stuff. So mm. he was, uh, he was, a, he was a, a, an unusual character, there's no doubt about that. He studied law and achieved quite, quite high results in his studies. Bright fellow. He was, yeah. He sure as hell put me to shame. All I got was an old BCL degree in 1977 or what it was. Ian Bailey managed to achieve a BCL degree, an LLB, and a master's in law. So, like, you don't get those by, you know, being, you know, Mm. kind of not too bright. So, yeah, he was a bright guy, well-able, very good student. I think well thought of up in UCC. I often spoke to lecturers of his afterwards who actually were helpful in relation to extradition and related matters, you know, down the line. And I read papers that he wrote uh, in legal, you know, things, and they were very erudite. And yeah, he was a, he was an intelligent man, no question about it. And in may I say, he was a journalist originally, and he mm-hmm. did have good credentials in his journalistic career, particularly in the UK before he came across here to Ireland in the early nineties. So yeah, he did have credentials. I don't want to particularly revisit the case, but you never had any time for the French conviction, did you, Frank? Not at all. It was it was generated uh, on the back of the Irish evidence. I mean, I, I I didn't go to France. I was following it in the media as much as anybody else. But like, it was an absolute farce. It was a farcical show trial, no more, no less. But that's what they wanted over there. That's their system. They had gross disrespect for our system. They knew that he was not going to be prosecuted here. As a friendly European country, you'd have thought that that would be sufficient, that we would have, a, you know, a mm. good and independent DPP system of prosecution here. But absolutely not. And they were shadowing our country from 1997 onwards, which we learned when we you know, began to defend the extraditions. Mm. The French initiated a criminal prosecution or a criminal process against Ian Bailey in France as far back as 1997. 
almost knowing and you know that Ireland was distrustful or you know not trustworthy and so that they, they would you know do certain things to keep the pot on the boil over there and all they used over there was the evidence which was absolutely rejected by the DPP over here repeatedly 97 1998 2001 up until 2008 when it was eventually decided that this file was going nowhere as mm-hmm. far as the concerned and then they go they get cracking was, was it ever so, yeah, the, did you ever think uh, frank that one of the reasons the dpp decided not to go with the prosecution was that main bailey was virtually unprosecutable in that there was no way you could possibly get a jury one is entitled to a jury of 12 people who've never laid eyes on you in their lives not possible no, I disagree with that. Sure, if that was the case, any trial, or, you know, which which had preceding publicity of any consequence, couldn't occur. That's never a problem in this jurisdiction. No, absolutely not. What I do say, by the way, of course, as a part of the strategy to frame him way back along the lines, was that he was put out there in the media. Your interview just confirms it with him a while ago. What was done to Ian Bailey? He was identified as the suspect going into the police station and coming out of it. So yes, that was grossly unfair. But that, if there ever had been a prosecution, that would have been dealt with by a trial judge charging a jury that they're not to be influenced by, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, no, that wouldn't have happened. No. Okay, yeah, and I, I do remember that very, very clearly, Frank, his name on all the newspapers. And I remember at the time, as a journalist even, thinking, mm, we don't usually do that, do we? No. Do you think this will ever be solved Frank, now that Ian has passed away, do you think we will ever know what really happened on that night in December 1996? Uh, no, I don't. But I mean, I suppose one lives in hope that there is the chance that, you know, the cold case review, which I think was still, you know, hovering around him, but maybe hovering around other potential suspects as well. I mean, the chances of, I, I've said it, there are two, there are two, you know, ways in which something like this could happen. Number one, getting information from some source, even late in the day. Number two, a more modern form of, you know, scientific or forensic assessment of what might have happened, though that, you know, possibility is receding. Now, in respect of number one, information, there must be information out there. Somebody knows, either in this jurisdiction or in some other jurisdiction, something which could lead to a prosecution or the, at least the identification of a proper suspect. Number two, you know, the generation of DNA, forensic evidence, matters of that kind. Now, insofar as Ian Bailey is concerned, he had long since provided all of that material to the police and he, there was no forensic link whatever between him and the crime. So he's gone. So that leaves anybody else who might possibly be a suspect. But I, I do acknowledge that the chances of identification of a proper suspect are are. Yeah, you know, very, very slim at this stage. I suppose they, they always exist, but they're very slim. Okay. Frank, I thank you very much uh, for your time. Frank Bottomer, long-time solicitor for our Ian Bailey, uh, who got to know him very, very well over the years and represented him in many, many cases. Thank you, Frank. I've just There are two superb articles this morning, one in The Examiner and the other in The Echo. Now, I've been through other papers and they all do it justice, but I think The Echo probably wins for me. It's on page three and it's got a super timeline of all the events since January of 1997. And it's also in The in the Examiner. But they're, like, they start with as far back as Marie Farrell. Do you remember Marie Farrell? 
She contacted the guards to say she'd seen a man near Calefodder Bridge, near Sophie's home, in the early hours of December 23rd. And it began with that. Ian Bailey was arrested in February, questioned, released without charge, arrested again in January 1998, re-arrested and again released without charge. And the articles take you right through to June 2022 when Gardaí announced a cold case review and the press conference in Skull marking the anniversary that they were looking for further information. Anybody who wanted to come forward could come forward. So those are the articles. There's a lot of people this morning also claiming credit for being the first journalist or the first person to ever interview Ian Bailey. And in my mind, that distinction goes to a former colleague of ours here at 96FM and indeed our sister station C103, a colleague who sadly fell into poor health in the last decade or so. I speak of Deirdre O'Reilly. Deirdre was a fantastic news reporter for us back in the very early days of the radio station. And I know for a fact, or it's my view, that Deirdre was the first one to ever interview Ian Bailey. She found the house and she went up to the door and she rapped on the door and simply asked him, would he talk to her? And he did. And she said he was charming and polite. And he invited her in and made tea. And they, I don't know if that tape still exists. Maybe it does, somewhere deep in the archives of what is now C103. But that's the first recollection I ever have of a journalist interviewing Ian Bailey. And it was, as I say, and I know she's still with us and her health is stable these days. But if anybody um, if anybody is uh, speaking to Deirdre O'Reilly, would you give her our love and give her our respect and tell her, I remember that in my mind, she'll always be the first one who interviewed Ian Bailey. Listen to Cork's 96FM on your smart speaker. Play. Press play and step to the beat. Simply say, play Cork's 96FM. Someone says here, there was a hell of a lot of circumstantial evidence against Ian Bailey. In our justice system, though, they almost want you on CCTV to convict you of a crime. Another message then says there's no justice in our justice system. I would say that for anybody who believes that Ian Bailey did kill Sophie Tosca and Duplantier, there's someone who believes that he didn't. And that's as much as I'd be prepared to say on a morning like this. Um, come back to something that is going to dominate us over the next couple of weeks, and I know it is, and that is the bottle tax. And we were just talking at the weekend at home, what we're going to do with all these bottles. Where are we going to store them so that we can take them back and put them into the machine and get the voucher out of it? We're thinking of buying a storage box and sticking it into the boot of one of the cars because we can't crush them down now. We have to keep them, keep them pristine and clean and not crushed and everything. That's just one problem. But D, you can remember, I think so can I, there was a deposit on glass bottles and you'd get a couple of pence, three or four pence you'd get back on glass bottles and we used to take them back. And we thought that was normal, didn't we? Good morning. Yeah, very normal. Good morning, PJ. Um, my mum used to put them around the side of the house by the side gate so to be taken out. And, of course, myself and my friends would all gather around. 
grab as many bottles as we could and go to the shop, get the money and they'd sell us cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> You'd get three or four pence or something for a bottle, wouldn't you? Whatever. Yeah, yeah. We take back about 20 bottles, sure. We were able to get sweets and cigarettes and all sorts. Sure, we had a great day. Surely you're not old enough to remember when you get... Surely you're not old enough to remember when they'd sell you one cigarette. Oh, I do. I do. (laughs) At the bottom of Douglas County... what am I saying? The shop at the end of the, the Douglas. Yeah. He'd sell you a cigarette and he'd give you a match and a bit of scratch as well. <laughs> I remember that. There was a shop on Turner's Cross used to do it too. And he'd give one and a match and a, match and a scratch. Now, not that I ever smoked, but I do remember lads doing it and having well, the yeah. bottles. And, and in case anyone ever dropped a bottle into a <laughs> bin by mistake, that they'd, they'd go and they'd, they'd take them oh. out. Oh, definitely. Sure, I was I was everybody's best friend the day I had the bottles because they'd all come after me for a cigarette because <laughs> I'd be before 10. <laughs> yeah. What do you think of all the fuss? I mean, look, we're all looking to this new... Oh. Pla- do you think it's the... Do you think there's too much fuss about it? Yeah, well, what was the problem with crushing them up and putting them into recycling? Yeah. What's the big deal, right? It would seem not enough of us are doing money it. Out of us. it. would seem not enough of us are doing it. Oh, right, right. I am so a lot of plastic bottles still getting dumped. So they reckon if they well, make... I suppose yeah. you'd see youngsters going along the street and they'd finish the bottle and they just throw it. Yeah. I've seen it. And I've actually called them out on it. I say, listen, there's a bin at the end of the street, pick it up and put it into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in Germany, a lot of people, they've seen homeless people go around from bins, collecting them. take ah. the bottles and make a bit of cash out of it. Um, exactly. Yeah. I can't see any harm in it, but I presume you could still put them in your ordinary recycling if you wish to. You, you, you can, but you just won't get your 15 cents back. You can. You're... Oh, no, but you see, I don't have a car then, so I can't collect them up. There's a thing. And that's the. That's the and I drink all bottled for... water. Yeah. That's the thing I think so... they're forgetting. It's going to become <laughs> very costly for people who don't have the facilities to get out to. Uh, to exactly. a recycling machine exactly. or a return machine. Dee, you were listening to... Um, Ashling rang us last week. Ashley. Quite distressing Oh, my call. God. My heart went out to her. Trying to get onto a... I know how she felt. Two years I was in pain. I understand exactly how she felt. You went abroad, did you? soul destroying. I did. I went across the Denier. Yeah. What Best did thing you? I ever did. Yeah. What, actually, what happened to Ashling? Ashling has a slipped disc or a bulging disc in her neck. And yeah. she's in a lot of pain since before Christmas. Yeah. And she's trying to get a consultant. And she's been told, and just reminding yeah. listeners who might have missed it, she's been told now that it could be three years or more before she gets yeah. to see the consultant. And she's literally living on painkillers. Well, my friend was waiting for me to come back from Spain. She has one at the bottom of her spine. Right. She couldn't even walk. Bulging disc. And she was waiting to see how I got on. And she went out in September and she did. They were telling her here she needed major surgery. She went out there and they did something on her. Don't ask me what now, but they put loads of needles in her back and she's walking perfectly. That's fantastic. She didn't need any operation. She's flying. So if Ashley could get out there, she would get cured <laughs> within yeah, weeks. Somebody was recommending that she ring the treatment abroad people and see yes, what they'd say to her. What they have to say. Yeah, yeah, totally. That sounds like good advice. Um, it's no harm in ringing them because you're not committing to anything. Yeah. You yeah. don't commit to anything till you fill out the form. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And they're very helpful. They really, really are. What did you have done again? So, my knee. Right. Okay. 
Fantastic. Absolutely outstanding. Baby. And how long My would you have been delighted. waiting? <laughs> From the start of the filling out the form? No, no. Weeks. If, well, no. If you had stayed <laughs> here. Yeah. Oh, probably another two years. Right. Sure, my friend was told it'd be three years before she'd even see a surgeon. Right. And, and then, she's fixed now and all. And she's fixing all. And you were facing into a couple of years and you picked up the phone. Yeah. And how quickly from when you picked I up the phone? I heard. Pardon? Hmm? I'm sorry. I missed that. Sorry, How BJ. quickly from when you picked up the phone? Well, I was being treated for a torn tendon in my ankle at the time, so I had to wait two weeks until I was signed off that. And then I filled out the form that day, and three weeks later I was on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> so tis, four weeks in all. <laughs> tis, tis hard to beat it. Tis hard to beat it. Dee, thank you very much. And yes, I remember bringing bottles back to the shop and getting sweets with it. Not cigarettes, but sweets, definitely, in, in the shop. 0818969696. Speaking of shops, Aoife was on. This is distressing to hear. I was in deals in Grand Parade over the weekend, says Aoife, and I saw signs that said, for their protection, our staff wear body cams. For goodness sake, there's such a great bunch of people. It's so sad that it's come to this for retail staff, don't you think? I absolutely do think, Aoife. That it's it's a shame that someone doing their job behind a till or behind a counter needs to wear a body cam for their protection. That's an indictment of where we've gone to in 2024. Check this out. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96 FM. I'm the guy on the radio in the afternoons that's giving away the best prizes and making you happy. Oh my goodness, amazing. I'm so excited. Thank you so much, Simon. Guest interviews are never boring. Hosier's having the crack. I'm going to say, no, that's not real. But it'd be amazing. I'm not that imaginative. That's a real tweet. (laughs) And you're always hearing the best tunes from these guys. Hey, this is Rihanna. This is Emery. This is Ed Sheeran. Talk to you in the afternoon. Simon Murdoch. Midday to 4 p.m. With First South Credit Union. Where your needs are put before profits. First South Credit Union. Members come first. It's this, it's this how we do it. Corks 96 FM. The minds are live. Join the conversation. Call 0818 969696. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 996. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Mind with PJ Coogan. Frank tells us that back in the day, the bin men used to do very well out of glass bottles when people put everything into the same bin. Uh, and the glass bottles included and the bin men or so Frank tells me and I'm sure I believe him the bin men would go through the the, the bins and get the glass bottles out of them and take them back to the shop and get a few bags and whatever else you have in yourself yeah who blamed them Frank <laughs> thank you for that 0818 96 96 96 the number that takes to WhatsApp 083 396 96 96 the email is opinion at 96 of m dot ie can I say thank you I've often said this and you know I've often said this some of the best crime writing in the world at the moment is being done by Irish women and even break that down further some of the best crime writing in the world at the moment is being done by Cork women. Uh, one of them 
Amy Cronin. Thank you, Amy. Sent me a copy in the post of her new book called In the Shadows. It is the follow-up in the Blinding Lies, Twisted Truth trilogy of books, all of which I've read and all of which I have enjoyed immensely. And this is the third one in the series, and I so look forward to getting stuck into it very, very soon. Amy Cronin's In the Shadows. Thank you for that, Amy, and very, very best of luck with it when it hits the shelves. If you go down to Gary Lucas... That lovely spot there, beach near the old head of Kinsale. Don't be at all surprised or even remotely worried if you see a woman, or more than one woman, screaming like a banshee at the raging sea. <laughs> Kira MacDonald, take me back to 2013. You were down on Gary Lucas Beach, you were having a bad old day, and you started <laughs> to scream. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, PJ. Whoa. Uh, yes. So back in 2013, I had moved from Dublin down here to the old head of Kinsale. And I had two under two. I was trying to get my career back on track. I was just kind of losing my mind a little bit. And I ran down to the beach and I remember it so distinctly because it was that January where we had endless storms. It was just constant. And I took my shoes off and I ran down to the end of the, of the shore and I let a roar out of me. And PJ, I felt better. Who and were so you roaring at, I was just roaring into the great abyss because, you know, sometimes, especially when you're a mother of young children, you just feel like you're kind of echoing around the place and talking to no one. So I just roared out and the sea took it away. And then you roared again because you enjoyed it the first time. I did. I felt that great relaxation that comes after a great scream. So I did it again and again and again. And then it kind of just became part of my sort of what we call now self-care regime. I mean, we didn't have anything called self-care back then, but it was just part of my way of coping with my life and the changes and the ebbs and flow and all that kind of stuff. And then also, you know, we all like, well, I mean, I don't know if we all liked it, but I like a good old shout, but I don't like shouting at my family. So it became my way of letting it all out. (laughs) And that was a particularly (laughs) nasty spell of weather in January of 2013. (laughs) <laughs> so the sea sure. was loud enough to drown you out. <laughs> it definitely was. And sure, look, it's always wild around here. I mean, there's always a bit of wind. So I never fear people getting um, frightened by me or anything like that, you know. And, and <laughs> has anyone ever walked up to you? I, I take it you've done it many times since and possibly even oh, yeah. in July oh, rather than people Jan- wave at me now and, oh, shoot, there she goes. Ah, there's Kira. Like... <laughs> I mean, I don't think, I think I'd be kind of amused if I walked by me, do you know, that sort of way. And also, I've clocked quite a few of other women doing it. And uh, recently, over the last couple of weeks, I've spoken to a lot of women who've been doing it for years. So mm. it, it appears I'm not alone. You set up Scream Club. <laughs> now, hang on. This is a gang of women, right? I'm gonna, this is a, gang, a gang, gang of women, women. who meet at Gary Lucas, <laughs> get out of their yeah. cars, go down on the sand and start roaring at the waves. 
Well, it's a little more organised than that. Listen, I was, we had like so many people around the country, we had a, a solid month, month and a half of sickness kind of coming into Christmas. Yeah. And kids went back to school. I was like practically hyperventilating at the thought of having, you know, a little bit of time to think, you know. And of course it wasn't to be because they were sick again. And I was driving into the chemist in Kinsale and I had the little fella in the car and I thought, Jesus Christ, I'd love an L Roar. And then I thought, <laughs> there must be other women that would love an L Roar. So I went home and I threw up a post on our local Kinsale Notice Board Facebook page. And lo and behold, I started getting messages from hundreds of women, all telling me that they'd been roaring and shouting at the sea for ages. And <laughs> then I was like, huh. We're on something. So and now they know. Ah, so she's the mad one that started it <laughs> it's all. It's her. Yeah, blame me. It's me. So um, anyway, two Saturdays ago, um, I said, "Listen, we'll all meet up." And I, to be honest, I didn't. I wasn't sure if anyone had come, but they did. And we did a little meditation, and we had loads of lovely chats. And do you know what, PJ? The, the screaming was brilliant, but the most brilliant part of it was all of us being together yeah. because um, women love to chat, right? We know this, but the great thing about women is we get past the, oh, isn't the weather shite? Oh, sorry for... Sorry. You're all right, um, you're isn't grand. The, Worst isn't things the have been terrible. said, you're grand. <laughs> <laughs> but we get kind of down and dirty really quick. So within five minutes, everyone was talking, properly talking. And the big common thread between all of us that were there that day was um, this kind of feeling of aloneness that is epidemic with all of us at the moment. But because there was such a huge um, age difference between the group, it was like everyone came away with something. Everyone came away with the feeling of, oh, it's not just me or I you know, I'm not the only one who's experiencing this or met someone who had experienced something that, that they were going through a number of years before. And so there was loads of stories shared is what I'm trying to say. And then afterwards, once we all kind of knew each other a little bit, we ran down and we let a roar and it wasn't sad shouting or like keening banshee crying. It was just release and joyous and amazing. And we were all high as kites afterwards. Sure, it was like we had 17 glasses of wine, but we didn't. We just had a cup of tea and a piece of cake. Now, there was, there actually is method to this madness because you've traced it back, <laughs> in fact, that people have been screaming at the sea for, for a long time. A fellow called oh, a Dr. Arthur time. Janov. Tell me about him. Yeah. So he was this American um, psychotherapist and he uh, pioneered, pioneered this thing called primal therapy where he believed that if you let all the roars that are inside out, then it was a really easy way of releasing the trauma that you're holding. Because like we all have trauma, everyone does. And so he had his patients screaming for years and then it became part of a practice during that time and going into 70s and 80s, it, it became kind of mainstream for psychotherapists to be encouraging their their people to scream. So it's been around for, and sure, look, we if I'm anything like the other women of Ireland, we've been screaming at the sea for years. So <laughs> it's just now groups of us are coming together to do it. And it's mega. Do you know, I'm going to ask you to do something for me, Kira, and you can tell me to take a hike if you want. But I would, <laughs> I would love some morning if you were down there, right? If one of yeah. the women would take it upon themselves to record, you know, they give me a video to record yeah. 
this group scream <laughs> on a mobile phone and send I'm it sure to me. I'm sure we would. I will. I will, of course, PJ. Because I have this, because I'm, I'm actually sitting here and I'm half tempted to turn around and let her roar at the city myself. <laughs> Do. It's so good. It feels so amazing. This is just for women, though. But do, would you well, do? for now, it's just for women. Like, uh, you know, I've had all these people contacting me and, and loads of men have been in touch too to say, Jesus, would you ever do one for men? But uh, it's only new, so we'll start with women and then we'll see where we go. So you've got sea swimming now accompanied by sea yeah. screaming. Yeah, yeah. And then the great thing about Gary Lucas is there's two saunas, one at Garthstown and one at Gary Lucas. So they can jump in the sauna afterwards and heat up their freezing cold bones, which is what it's all about. As far as I'm I sure it is. No, I, I look forward to that. You can send in the recording of it because we'd love and we'll, we'll give it, we'll, we'll play it out here, what it sounds like. A load of women screaming at the sea down in Gary Lucas. I think, and you know what? It's something we might even keep as a stress release that every time we get well, a bit stressed. <laughs> it could be like the stress ball it's brilliant so PJ can I just say that if anyone who's listening would like to get in touch with us they can email me at um, screamclubcork at gmail.com and I'd be delighted to talk to them because um, I'm sure loads of women would love to join us screamclubcork at gmail.com yeah. Kira a pleasure talking to you and I look forward I look forward to hearing it from the scream club that's brilliant lads that's giving me a laugh on this Monday morning when God we could do with one. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I look forward to getting that now, and I just know Kira will go and get it for me, this recording from Gary Lucas. I look forward to getting a recording of Screaming Women. From from Gary Lucas Beach. That'll be fun when it comes in. I promise I will. If we get a good recording, we'll we'll um we'll put it through the magic here and we'll play it out for you. Oh eight one eight ninety-six ninety-six ninety-six. Now on the twenty-sixth of August last, Ethna Minahan was at a wedding at the Walter Raleigh Hotel in Yall. And Ethna, you didn't feel well, you went up to your hotel room. And then tell me what happened. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Um, so, yeah, I was at a wedding. I went, I was out dancing with my niece. Mm-hmm. And I got, when I came off the dance floor, I got a pain in my teeth. Pain in your that teeth? Unusual pain. Yeah, wow. just my teeth. There was nothing else. No chest pains or anything. Nice. 
And I went over to my husband and I said, God, I got an awful pain in my teeth. And, you know, and was it one, sorry, no, this is strange. Was it mm-hmm. one tooth in particular or was it just... No, all no? my teeth. Wow. All my teeth. Never yeah. came across that um, before. It stopped me in my tracks as I was walking off the floor. Right. Um, I kind of went, Jesus, what was that? Mm-hmm. Um, so then I said it to my husband. We kind of passed it off. A minute or two passed and I said, oh, I have to leave. Mm-hmm. And he went, okay. And I just felt very hot and kind of agitated. Right. So we went up to the hotel room and straight into the bathroom and I started throwing up. Literally, we walked in the door and I just kind of said, oh, thank God, I'll feel better once that's out. I'm going to feel a whole lot better. Yeah. So the next thing, my teeth started hurting me again and I said to my husband, no, my teeth are sore. And as I said it, I got a pain in my chest Right. I started crying and I said, I know I have a pain in my chest. I thought I thought I was after pulling something from vomiting. Yeah. So he said, I'm going to ring Kieran, who's my brother. Yeah. He's he a paramedic, isn't he? At the he? wedding as well. Yeah. He's a paramedic. And I said, do not ring him. I said, it's no big deal. Once I have this out, I'll feel better. I'll get into bed. He said, no, no, I'm ringing him. He said afterwards, he just knew by looking at me that something wasn't right. It wasn't just me being sick. Yeah. So, Kieran came up to the room and he... <clears throat> Sorry, just one moment. It's okay. So, he said, um, are you okay? And like that, I was upset and I remember everything. And I just said, you know... My teeth are hurting. I'm after being sick. I have a pain in my chest. I'm after pulling something. You know, there's no need for you to be here. I'm fine. It'll pass. But like that, he ignored me. <laughs> and I do remember him asking my husband to see could he go and get an aspirin. Right. And I was thinking to myself, why is he getting me an aspirin? Now, I know what aspirin is for. Yeah. But I was saying, why is he getting me an aspirin? That's not going to stop me from getting sick. Yeah. I, I just didn't twig what was going on. Yeah. He had sensed so, he had sensed that this was more than just you feeling off. Me being sick. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and like that, he didn't, you know, he had poker face on. Everything was all very calm and cool. And so... Um, then my the, my husband came back and with the hotel manager, Jason, and in fairness, Jason was holding my hand and I was kind of caught for breath and he was saying, you're okay, try and breathe with me. And then the paramedics arrived in. Yeah. Two lovely people, Kira and Tommy. So they did everything they had to do. Mm. Um, you know, they hooked me up to the ECG. And... Um, you were having a cardiac arrest. They didn't say anything to me. And so at that point, I was having a heart attack, apparently. And I said, am I having a heart attack? And one of the paramedics just said, look, we'll pack you up and we'll bring you up to the CUH. Again, everything was all very calm and, you know, there's no big deal. And I was okay. And I kind of, the penny was finally starting to drop. And I said... 
oh my God, am I having a heart attack? It was just very surreal. Mm. So I asked, could I change my clothes? Because I had, again, I felt my clothes were too tight. It was like everything was heightened. Yeah. Um. So, and I felt a bit claustrophobic in my clothes. And so absolutely, she got me leggings and a T-shirt and she was helping me in the bathroom of the, of the paramedic left. And she was helping me in the bathroom to change my clothes. And I don't remember anymore. Um, apparently, that's when I went into cardiac arrest. So, Karen would be able to take up the side of the story because, obviously, in those minutes, I don't know okay. what happened. Well, let's bring him so, in. Um, his, his, uh, Gerald D joins me also for the National Ambulance Service. But, Gerald, I think Kieran is actually with you there. So, uh, he is PJ, yeah. Could so you I, put me on to him for a second so he can take we, the story we'll up? We'll let Karen pick it up from here, I suppose. So I'll pass you on from there. Thank please. you very much, Ger. Morning, PJ. Hi, Kieran. So you were at the wedding with with Ethna, and she, she calls you up to the room. Take the story up from there. Yeah, um, yeah. We were at a wedding. It was my sister-in-law, Siobhan. She was getting married, and um, I got a phone call from Chris, Ethna's husband. Ethna mm. was sick up in the room, so I went up to her, and uh, she, as she said, she was on the floor in the bathroom. She complained about uh, chest pain and, and her teeth. She kept saying her teeth were killing her. And just by looking at her, her presentation, you know, I, I've been to a, a lot of these <clears throat> type of calls and but this presentation, I knew we were we were going on a path there, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I said I, I'd call, call the, the ambulance out. And I did. And uh, the all ambulance, in fairness, the care and Tommy, they were out in no time. And um, we, we we quickly assessed on the um, ECG, which we done the ECG on it, and we could see that she was having a, a heart attack. Um, and as she was saying, um, she wanted to change her clothes, so Kira was giving her a hand. And then uh, Kira t- uh, called up to us to say that Etna was actually she was having a, a hypoxic um, seizure, which is usually just comes just before cardiac arrest. Mm. So we got Etna out of the bathroom into the um, bedroom so we'd have more space because we knew you know we knew where this was going if you like and and uh yeah at the winter cardiac arrest in front of us so we we literally were on you know we were on our chest uh, doing compressions and we got three shocks into her we'd done about six minutes of cpr on her and uh yeah we got her out of the cardiac arrest if you like and she Shortly after that, then she she was coming around. She didn't come around fully, but she was coming around. So we got our heart um, back into a rhythm, whereby uh, you know it was um, she was in a proper cardiac rhythm at that stage. Then, yeah, you know? yeah. It must be very. And she mentioned your poker face, and it's something I think paramedics are trained to do, and it's probably makes you so good at what you do. But it must be very hard to keep that up when it's your own sister. Yeah, I, uh, you know, PJ, I, I'm, I'm in the job. I'm in my 16th year now in the job. Um, so, as I said, I, I've, got, I've gone to an awful lot of categories down through the years. But when it is your own sister, when it is your own family, it is, you know, it is a di- different kettle of fish. But, you know, we're very well trained. And I think the training really, really just kicked in. So I was thankfully available to put on my paramedic hat um, mm-hmm. to work on it. It, it was the following day before it hit me, to be honest with you, PJ, you sure. know. Um, but 
in the moment, the training literally kicked in. And, um, you know, with, with the help of the, the ambulance crew from the all and absolutely the all um, fire service, um, you know, I, I knew we had everything we needed. Yeah. And when the fire service arrived, I knew with the, 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 the ambulance and everything, I knew we had everything we needed to get the to get Edna out of the hotel. Yeah. And, you, and up to park, up to the up once, to the once you had her stabilised, you could get her safely up the road into into the hospital. Etna, you what, what 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 do you remember next, Etna? Um, like I remember everything except those few minutes, and then when I came around, I woke up to a room full of firemen, <laughs> um, which wasn't a bad thing, really. To be fair, so they were. <laughs> <laughs> they they were amazing yeah. to be fair to them you know they were they were very calming and you know look, I know that's their job absolutely mm. but to experience it yeah was fantastic they were fantastic I, I I can't say enough about them and about Karen my my husband even said watching him go from brother to paramedic you know in a split second he said like we obviously we were talking about it in the days afterwards, and he said to watch him go from um, brother to paramedic was just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, um, so yeah, I remember going, you know, them bringing me down the stairs in the hotel, the the firemen, um, and again they were just reassuring and calming and. I felt completely safe because when I first came around, I was in um, like a stretcher with the, the Velcro, yeah, so that they could get. And I, I felt again like that, a bit claustrophobic, a bit, bit panicked. You know, obviously my initial thought was, "What, what, what is going on?" Because I was in the bathroom one minute, um, but again like that, they were just so calming. Yeah, I knew. After like a minute or two, mm. that I I was safe. You were safe, you know? and that's it's that's a, that must be a lovely feeling. That, that's after massive. That must be a lovely feeling. Um, Kieran, do you want to take this one, or maybe even pass it across to to Jar? If if this thing about pain in your teeth is that something you've come across? You said you've been out to many a cardiac arrest. Is that something you've come across before? Because it's certainly a new one on me, Kieran. Um, PJ, so they take that. Um, yes, sir. Like, I suppose generally what we find, to be honest, is that people would have pain in their chest and radiating up their jaw. So I suppose it would, you know, inevitably be in their teeth. But that might confuse somebody too because they think, you know, what has my teeth got to do with my heart? But it's just referred pain. It, it, it's travelling. The pain is travelling up into their jaw or generally down their left arm but it can it can travel anywhere so the pressure the pressure the, the pressure from the heart attack is reflected through the nerves and the teeth that's what it is that's that's basically it and i mean you know like people might brush this off and we'd say for the likes of etna there um you know thankfully somebody was with her that was able to recognize that you know, she was in a spot of bother here, and let's let's ring Karen and get him to have a look. And you know, as he said himself, he's in his 16 chairs, a paramedic, and we can have all the fancy equipment and all the fancy training, but it's the experience of looking at somebody, and when you know somebody is sick, you can see somebody is sick. Yeah. And I think 
Aaron's experience there is what really, you know, saved Etna's life because he knew, regardless of a little bit of civilry, rivalry of, no, you're not calling the ambulance. <laughs> yes, I am calling the ambulance. You know, you'll do what you're told in this situation. You'll do what you're told. You know, he, he, insisted, he insisted on the ambulance being called and thankfully they were on scene and able to diagnose yeah. that, yes, Etna was having, you know, a massive heart attack. Um, they were making preparations at the time to bring her straight to the, the PCI lab in CUH, so it's a bypass protocol we have when somebody is having a massive heart attack. We don't go to accident and emergency where possible to go straight in onto the, the operating table in oh, the cat lab. Very so good. the whole process up. Um, and I suppose, look, uh, unfortunately, she did go into cardiac arrest, but the right people were there at the time and then to have the local fire service back them up as well. It yeah. just meant that for Kieran, which I'm sure was a, a highly emotionally charged event for him, he was able to step back as being that paramedic again and now be the brother and make the phone calls and do what he had to do as, a, as her big brother. Um, and look, thankfully, the outcome was tremendous. Wasn't it just... An important message is in all of it, PJ, is the speed of getting the hands on the chest doing CPR, regardless whether you're a paramedic, a firefighter, or the local librarian. You know, if people just do a CPR course with 70% of these type of things happening in the home, the chance there's going to be a loved one, you'll do it, do it on. And here we are now, we're looking at Karen with 16 years' experience and his first experience of, of a cardiac arrest in the home or in a hotel was his sister. Yeah. So, you know, whether you're a paramedic, a fireman, or just, you know, the local the local librarian, as long as somebody is doing CPR and getting the defibrillator on the chest, that's what's yeah, saving Very life. solid advice. Hold on there for me one second, Ger. Etna, I'm going to be terribly rude and, and ask you what age you are. <laughs> Uh, 48. I was 48 when it happened. I'm 49 now. You look, and I'm looking at pictures of you here down at the Fire and Rescue Service, and you you look and sound, and you seem way too young to have a heart attack. And, Gerard, that's one of the great myths, isn't it? It is. I mean, look, I mean, anybody can suffer a heart attack, you know, for for any kind of reason. Um, You know, it could be a simple thing like somebody off a a long-haul flight who develops a clot and that clot travels and it eventually gets to the heart. Um, And, you know, people would often ask us, what's the difference between a heart attack and a cardiac arrest? Well, the easiest way to put it is that a heart attack is generally a plumbing problem where there's a blockage in a pipe. So in that case, it's a blockage of the coronary artery which causes severe chest pain and radiating to the jaw or the arm, whereas a cardiac arrest is that the heart has completely stopped and the person is generally lying on the floor unresponsive. Um, but it just goes to show that a heart attack gone untreated you know, can develop into a cardiac arrest. And in the length of time that it happened for Etna, they were only talking, I suppose, from the time she left the dance floor to the time she was in cardiac arrest was probably about 10 minutes. You know, so, you know, it is so important that people do ring 99 or 112, you know, when they do suffer that level of, of chest pain because it could be life-threatening. And lastly, Ger, and we take calls here and messages every day of the week about the feelings in our health service, but I think you have to hold your hands up and say the skills are there and there was proof of it that night. The skills and the experience are there and our people 
our paramedics are brilliant. Absolutely, PJ. And I mean, for, you know, with this particular call for Retina, like she had the skills of her brother being an experienced paramedic. She had the local uh, Yall ambulance, again, very experienced paramedics. The local Yall fire service with experienced emergency first responders. And we work regularly hand in hand with all of those agencies anyway at road traffic accidents and the like, and even more so in recent times with medical calls. Um, and then, you know, we had the advanced life support coming as well from, from Cork City with an advanced paramedic. So all of that coming together, you know, really attributed to saving her life. But what, you know, I can only ever come back to all the time, PJ, is that unless somebody is doing the basic of CPR when we get there, often, no matter how much of the fancy stuff we bring to a scene, mm. the outcome isn't as positive. Yeah. We need the basics to be done right. And, you know, we would always reach out to people to to learn CPR. And if I was to just, I suppose, signpost somebody towards, or, or we have a dedicated website, which is become a CFR.ie. And, you know, it, it'll direct people to training. It'll direct people to how to set up a community first responder scheme that will get an alert when something like this happens and they can go and help the ambulance service or in, in rural areas often they get there ahead of the ambulance service due to the journey time and the geographical areas of Ireland. So it is working, PJ. And thankfully, you know, Etna, like while she thought she woke up in heaven with all the firefighters, <laughs> it was just, uh, you know, yes, a great, <laughs> it was a great system. We say it takes a system to save a life and that particular night, that system works so well and it's just, you know, it's an honour to be able to have Etna on air with, with yourselves and okay. be able to tell her story because, you know, this is a regular thing that happens around Ireland every day and often the outcome isn't great, but, you know, good luck. No, with this one, you know, this it's just absolutely good. Okay, listen, I'll leave you all there. Thank you very much. Ethan, I'm delighted to see that you're back to full health. Um, and Chris, is Chris all right? Did he get over it? <laughs> just about. <laughs> um, I, I do keep him on his toes, so. <laughs> well, you um, certainly did that, anyway, and I don't mean his oh, dancing I, I toes either. I did, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> all right, I, can I just say as go well, on, go on. you know, I will forever be grateful to every single person and I saw how they all they were tag team they were just outstanding and yeah. I'll forever be grateful okay. and to to Karen there as well I suppose I better say thank you to you know so everyone hears it yeah he's great best <laughs> <laughs> brother ever fantastic <laughs> alright delighted, delighted to Talk to you, Etna, and to Kieran and to Ger indeed and Chris to hear that wonderful story of just how it all comes together when it's needed but there's great advice there from Jero D and there's lots of people do these cardiac first responder classes um, and they are everywhere there's a cardiac first responder everywhere but they need more of them thank you guys and best of luck and continued good health to Ethan with Izzy Showbizzy on Cork's 96FM. Join me weekdays from 4pm where you could win a voucher for Oak Fire Pizza for voice notes like this. Hi Izzy, I would love some Taylor Swift. I'm such a Swifty. We might be putting your knowledge to the test with a quiz or two. I haven't been this nervous since I was at school. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I'll be sure to play more of your favourite tunes. And I love your show. Your music is fantastic, Izzy. I love it. Join me weekdays from 4pm. The Big Drive Home. You can drive me home. With Izzy Show Busy. Cork's 96FM. 96FM. You might have read there some reports in the last 6 to 12 months and some opinion pieces too saying that it should be more expensive to drive and to park an SUV, a Jeep, basically. Now, there's thousands of them on Irish roads. The statistic I read was that in the huge number of a huge percentage, in, in 2022, 65% of all new passenger cars sold in Ireland were SUVs. Now, were they big Range Rovers or were they little Dacia Dusters? I don't know. Uh, Catherine Conlon is a public health doctor with the HSE based in Cork. You've been writing about this in The Examiner, Catherine. You believe it's time to come down hard on SUVs and make it more expensive to own and drive one. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Um, well, I suppose the first question really is what is happening on our on our roads with car deaths. And we've seen tragically uh, this year, I think it's now 12 road deaths on the road already mm-hmm. this month. We had um, road deaths went up by a fifth, almost a fifth last year. And of those, about a third of them, 30% of them were in vulnerable, unprotected road users. So there was 44 pedestrians, eight cyclists, three e-scooters. And we are, we're we're ca- trying to counteract that now by bringing in speed limits um, in this year. So on on town centres and housing estates, 30 kilometre per hour speed zones, uh, rural roads where a, a huge number of our road deaths occur, about 70 percent of them, 60 kilometres per hour. Um, and this this is is is, is we know that um, speed speed limits work. Um, because they've been introduced in other 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 countries in Europe and further afield, and it has been, for instance, in in Spain in Balboa, thirty kilometer speed hour, speed limit in twenty twenty one, road deaths went down by a quarter. Yeah. In the UK, similar studies, road deaths went down by forty percent. So speed limits would really work because they reduce the time that driver has to react. They increase the distance required to stop the vehicle. They increase the energy involved. Sure. In, in in a crash, raising the odds of an injury, they decrease that energy. But um, but there are there are other measures that are receiving very little attention. Include the number of cars on the road and also the number of big cars. So um, so and we've seen very clearly now that like road deaths have come way down since the nineteen nineties in Ireland. We have done really well by sure. reducing road deaths from about six hundred down to one hundred and fifty. And that was because of really effective legislation around things like drink driving, seatbelts, car seats, airbags, improved road infrastructure, penalty points. So we've introduced a huge amount of legislation and we saw that that was really effective. But in the last year or two, um, despite all that legislation, the numbers of road deaths are really spiking up again. And there are a couple of factors that have to be addressed. One is the number of cars on the road. And the other is the size of the cars. So again, in the 1990s, we had about one car for every four citizens. Now we have one car for every two citizens. Um, so, you know, it's not rocket science. Is it any wonder fatalities are increasing? When well, yeah, cars more on cars the, on the road is going to lead. But so getting cars, cars are a necessity for an awful lot of people, Catherine, particularly families with young children. Yeah. So, so as you say, in terms of the SUVs, 65% of all UK passenger cars, Irish people are in love with their SUVs. They're in love with their cars. They're also in love with their SUVs. 
2022 in Ireland were SUVs of the new cars that were sold. That's 13 percentage points higher than the European average. So, And we know that bigger cars are a safety disaster for, uh, not for the driver, but for you know whoever that driver uh, impacts with. So if you think about an SUV or a Range Rover sliding into you on a motorway compared to, say, a Volkswagen Golf or a Fiat Panda, what are the chances of a small child being visible Indeed. in front of a Range Rover? Indeed. Is there, a, is there any statistic, Catherine, that you know of where fatal accidents, the connect, how many fatal accidents or how many accidents involving serious injury had an well, SUV if, involved if, in them? If you look at the, again, we love our SUVs. The Americans love their big cars even more so. And, the, and we know that um, since 1980, car size in the U.S. has increased by an average of 500 kilos. So they've gone from being about, about 1,500 kilos to being about 2,000 uh, kilos on average. And we know the deaths in the U.S., um, road deaths have risen by a third since 2011, and pedestrian deaths have risen by a massive 77% since 2010. So, so these, these, I mean, again, it's, it's, you know, it's the kinetics of, of, this, of a vehicle that's almost twice the size of what it used to be. If that crashes into you, the odds of a serious injury are far, are far higher. And some countries, we, we haven't really got around to addressing this because we're very fond of our economic model and selling as many cars as possible. Like, would you like to make it more expensive, for example, as I think they did in France, or at least they were thinking about it, make it more expensive to park an SUV? So that, that is a real, a real option. So as you say, in France, in 2022, uh, 65% of our cars were SUVs. In, in France, about half of their cars, 45% of them were SUVs. And the, the really iconic mayor over there, Anne Hidalgo, who has done so much for active travel and getting people out of cars and onto bikes, is is now, I think they quoted just last week um, a, an article that there were in Russia, there are more cyclists, more bikes on the road than cars in central Paris at this point. And she's now proposing tripling parking rates for SUVs from 18 euros an hour in central Paris and 12 euros an hour in the rest of the city. And that would affect about a tenth of the cars in the city and can you think about what a stiff parking fee like that would do to the number of Irish SUV drivers parking in Irish I'm, I'm thinking, Catherine, it would be extremely unfair on families with small children. Well, you see, I mean, you can say that until you, until you see the alternative in action. So if we, if we have a policy where we really pr promote active travel, public transport, I mean, it's very difficult to pr promote public transport effective, efficient public transport on roads that are completely clogged with yeah, cars. Like Paris has an exceptional very, public transport system. Yeah, yeah, and it's very difficult to ask your eight-year-old to cycle to school if they're in a cycle lane that's, that, you know, is, is, it just turns into the footpath after 300 yards and then they're on an open, open road and competing with SUVs and cars. And I suppose some capital cities in Europe who have had huge success in, in reducing road debts um, had no two cities, Helsinki and Oslo, in 2019, they had no pedestrian debts in either city. And they, their, their plans have included cutting speed limits, but they've also completely changed the street design to make it easier for pedestrians and cyclists. They have removed space for cars. They've generally made life difficult for motorists. So, and that is now working. So, as I say, no pedestrian or cyclist deaths in 2019 in Oslo. No children under 16 dying in traffic fatalities. 
Um, and they have sliced those road fatalities down from about 20 to 30 per year down to a handful, less than five a year, and one year having none. And how have they done it? They've reduced speed limits. They've increased tolls by 70%, which is obviously a very significant figure. They've removed thousands of car park spaces. They have placed uh, banned uh, car traffic around schools. So they've created these heart zones around schools where you have to walk or cycle to the school. Safety education, better street design, protected Which, which is all great if you have, and I, I agree with you, Catherine, by the way, and I've been in cities where they have wonderful public transport systems and you just don't need to bring a car in. We're not there in Ireland by a long chalk. No, so we're not. But the, the, what's really holding it up, well, there are two factors. One is the number of cars that are on the road, which makes public transport really difficult. But building safer roads is the easy bit and building public transport is the easy bit. It is harder to bring people along to realise how important it is to have safety and security on the roads for everybody who uses them. So what, what we also need is a behavioural, really good behavioural change campaigns to change the culture around car use and the benefits to, first of all, climate, which is the, the, you know, the disaster that's plummeting towards us. Also, in terms of physical activity, we know that none of us are getting anything near the recommended guidelines around physical activity, including our children, fitness, obesity, and also in terms of, you know, improving cohesive communities for people of all ages and backgrounds, which is obviously something that's so important to all of our communities right now. And all the evidence shows that if we really push active travel and, uh, you know, make disincentives for cars and improve the public transport. And again, you know, if you look at the public transport that's being rolled out across the rural roads in the last two years by Minister Ryan, it has been phenomenal, the success of that system because of the level of um, urgency and priority and resources that it has been given. Yeah. Okay, it's it's something we'll put out there and let people think about. Catherine Conlon, a public health doctor with the HSE here in Cork, on the idea that it's time to, and I'm these are my words, not Catherine's, and I stress that declare war on the car, declare war on the SUV in particular. Um, I don't know whether I agree or disagree with her. I think what she's talking about would make great sense in a city with fantastic public transport. Not Cork, not even Dublin. We don't have the public transport to do it. That's the problem. But do you agree or disagree with her? We'll pick up on this after the news. Let's go back through some of the stuff that um, Catherine Conlon was saying. She looks at the reduction of speed limits and said, yeah, they work. More policing, yeah, that'll work. Stricter penalties, that'll work. We're about to see a big change in speed limits this year. Uh, Under new laws, speed limits would be lowered to 80 kilometres an hour, which is 50 miles an hour in old money on national secondary roads, 60 kilometres an hour on local roads and 30 kilometres in town centres and housing estates. 30 kilometres an hour is about just under 20 miles an hour, which is very slow, but it's safe. It's very safe. And then she talks about cooling off our love affair with cars, particularly SUVs, and she suggests it should be harder and more expensive to drive cars that she says are the size of tanks, ensuring enough safe space for cyclists and pedestrians. Now, the Hyundai Tucson would probably qualify as an SUV, 
That was the best-selling car in Ireland in 2023. The Kia Sportage was the second best. That would qualify as another SUV. Toyota had the Corolla and the Yaris Cross. And then the Volkswagen ID was the rest of the top five. Also in there, the Hyundai Kona and the Skoda Octavia. So there's maybe four or five of the top ten where what might qualify to be SUVs. Now, she reminds us that 65% of all new passenger cars sold in Ireland in 2022 were SUVs. And of all these statistics, the one statistic that Catherine Conlon wasn't able to give me, and I don't know if it's there. So if you look back at all the road accidents and deaths and injuries of 2023, say, or 2022, how many of those accidents, I would be asking this question, how many of those accidents actually involved an SUV? Because until you drill down that particular subject or statistic, and I'm only saying this as a layman with an opinion here, unless you drill down that particular statistic and say, well, of the hundred and something serious accidents we'll say in any given time, here's the number of them that involved an SUV. Then you have a direct statistic. Otherwise, you have an assumption. And I'm sorry, but I have great respect for Catherine and her opinions, but it's based on an assumption. Is there a statistic out there for the number of accidents that actually involved an SUV? And can we show, can we demonstrate through a figure that there are X number of accidents directly involving an SUV? It's just a thought. I have an 04 Toyota Corolla. Road tax is 110 for three months. I go for an NCT just like everyone else. My car is safe. The emissions are actually quite low, thanks to Japanese engineering. In fact, I think it's in line with many modern cars. Also, keeping old cars on the road reduces emissions caused by manufacturing cars, which also damages the environment in a lot of different ways for manufacturing pollution. Which isn't quite connected to SUVs, but thank you. Something else that happened last week, there was a statistic came out about LED headlights. Now, I love LED headlights. I love LED light. I love really bright LED light. It's to do with my eyesight. I, I need to work in bright light. And I love LED lighting. And I love the bright LED lighting in modern headlights. But they did a survey in the UK. And a huge number of people came back and said, yeah, they're grand. They light up the road. Something brilliant. But also, if you're coming against somebody in a car with LED lights, they're too bright. They're too bright. Mary Jane, you were reading that. Um, is it one? I'm going to let's... Uh, yeah, one. Mary Jane, you, you, you saw that survey and you kind of agree with it. Good morning. Hello, Mary Jane. Hello. Hi. Oh, sorry. sorry, PJ. You're all right, girl. You, you, saw, you saw that survey and you'd agree with it. Oh, my God, I absolutely would. Um, I wear glasses for reading. Now, I don't technically need them for driving. Um, but I wear, I, because of all this, this, I have anti-glare on the glasses. And because of the way when I'm driving at night now, I always wear my glasses. Um, because they're, they're actually way too bright. Um, and if you're coming, like if you're on the motorway and they're on the other side, you can still see them, but they're not as bad. But 
obviously we live in Ireland and we know what the roads are like and most of our day-to-day commute are for me anyway if I'm you know if I'm going to do grocery shopping in the evenings or if I'm commuting back from work you know it's, it's all kind of single lane traffic and when they're coming towards you it can be really really hard um, to see and I was kind of thinking initially when this was happening I thought that they were to use the expression now boil racers mm. but that they were people that were modifying the cars yeah but then the more I kind of looked into it, the more I realised that, like, a lot of people were being affected by it. Um, and even some of the people on Twitter last week were saying to me, because I retweeted something that Geraldine Herbert had put up, um, and she's the motoring correspondent, yeah. and she, um, loads of people were saying that their parents wouldn't drive at night time anymore because of it, because they, it was affecting their eyesight so much. Right. So it, as you get older, it, it gets kind of worse um, because they're too blue and they're too concentrated. But I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever been affected by it where someone's coming behind you and their um, headlights oh. are hitting your yeah. uh, Air, rear view. Airwolfing is yeah, what I call it. Airwolfing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's absolutely blinding. And uh, like I would always in that case put on my hazards just to let them know like, but it's not that their lights are on full. That's just the way the lights are, um, and it's only it's it's only going to get worse. Um, but the RAC in the UK did a, um, a, a survey on it, I think, in 2022, and they were just saying that like um, 64% of people thought that they were causing that 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 these lights were a risk to other drivers to have collisions. So it's it is it's a, it's a massive thing. Now my glasses do help a little bit, right? But um, it, it's just because the light is so concentrated as you get older. Uh, there's so, I'm sure there's an optician that will be able to explain this far better. But you know the light gets dispersed differently in your eyes. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so I think now and look, I'm I'm not a, a an, an old one or a young one. I'm kind of in the middle. Um, but there's when I was kind of researching it then afterwards. Um, there's loads of Reddit threads and boards threads on it um, where people, and in the States, um, there's petitions for calling for a ban um, on, on, these, on these particular types of headlights. Now, I know you were talking about SUVs. I think people notice it in SUVs because they're up a little bit higher yeah. and they're maybe more a little bit at your eye level. But it's it's happening in all of the cars, like even the kind of fancy kind of coupe cars, and and especially in electric vehicles now because they're obviously more cost effective to run and you know. Well, LEDs are far cheaper to run. They're far cheaper, and they draw an awful lot less energy out of the car to run the LEDs. Something else though that happens, Mary Jane, a lot, I would say, with modern cars in particular, and some people don't actually realise that it's there down under the steering wheel or down under one side. There's always a little, little lever or a little button that you can actually lower and raise the lights. Yes. I mean, most yeah. people don't realise that's there. So maybe if the lights are a bit, are a bit, are dazzling, you just just give them a flick of a switch and they'll come down a little bit. You can still yeah. see plenty. That's it, and they're designed because they're supposed to make the road safer for the person who's driving, but they don't take into consideration the other road users. I don't think as as much. And you see, the thing about it is that they're all regulated and it's all above board and everything. But it's just if you are a person that's, you know, 
you know, that's that, that light sensitive or, mm. you know, I, I would say, I you know, I'd be often thinking about people with epilepsy and stuff. I'm saying there's somebody coming at you over speed ramps and stuff. It's nearly like a flashing light. That's, even that's, if they're going a at a, a slow that's pace. A uh, yeah, even if you're going at a slow pace, you know. And um, so it, they, they are. And I, I think, um, like, a lot of the newer cars now have this strip, you know, so instead of just headlight, like a little yes. strip of light. And they're actually even, I, I think, nearly worse <laughs> because they're, they'd completely dazzle you all together. They're like some of a disco. I, I, I don't like yeah. them at all. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, I'd say bring back the Ford Escort. <laughs> 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 um, you know, the halogen ones are definitely, they're, they're easier on the eye. But, um, and it is, it's, it's true because even with in fog and stuff, and I live, I live kind of in the city, but I, I, when I'm commuting, I'm commuting out the link by the magic roundabout, you know, and it can be quite foggy out there because it's near the airport, and people don't know how to use their fog lights. That's true. And people, you know, and they don't, they don't know not to use their head, you know. So I don't know what the scenario is, but definitely that little lever thing, um, like all you have to do is park in front of a shop window. That's right. And look in, and that, that's what I was taught when I was learning to drive. And you just adjust it to make sure that you that it's not going skew width, like. That's right. Because anyway. if, if 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 it's if it's beamed too up, too far up, then you are blinding people. Mary Jane, thank you. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. You'd be surprised the number of people I discovered it in one of in my little small car. Uh, I have a little Sandero, little Dacia Sandero, grand little thing, fab little thing, but it has. I was driving out the country one night there recently and the lights were fierce high up in the ditch. I said, what's going on here? And I reached down and since I bought the car, I've never actually done that little adjustment and whoosh, back down they came. Uh, particularly in modern cars. The older cars, you had to have it manually done by, by someone in a garage, but you can do it now at the modern whoosh, and it comes straight down. But come back to the SUV. I, I, I'm sticking with this on the SUVs because... I don't like the demonization of any particular kind of car or any particular kind of driver. I don't like that. And the idea that you would charge more to park an SUV in the city centre, I don't think that's fair. And I don't care what they've done in Paris. I don't think it's fair. Because if you've got family, if you've got kids, if you've got GA on a Saturday morning and soccer on a Saturday afternoon and three or four different school runs to do during the day with the uniforms and the bags and the you need that car. And if you're using your car as the place to, for work, you, you need space. You absolutely need space. And I would like to see this connection. What was it we had last year on the roads? And one death is one too many. We had 150 deaths on the roads last year. And we countless other injuries. And all of that is terrible. But in order to blame it on SUVs, You'd need the statistic that linked which fatal accident involved an SUV, which accident involving injury involved an SUV. Start with that statistic before you start punishing people who buy a decent-sized car because they need a decent-sized car. Oh, wait, one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six on Ethna's story, and Ethna was with me earlier on. We'll podcast this, Ethna Minahan. I was at a wedding at the Walter Raleigh Hotel in Yall last August. She got a heart attack. Her own brother was the paramedic on the scene and he called everybody else in. And Ethna and her brother and Gerald D from the ambulance service were with me earlier this morning. We podcast 
that later. I remember that wedding, says Mike. I was the best man. I'm delighted she's okay. Thanks, Mike. We had this message in over the weekend, and I wanted to get to it uh, before the end of the program. You remember on Friday we were talking about yet another business gone in the city, Bauhaus. Um, and it was sad to see them go because they've been there for for nearly 25 years, believe it or not. Uh, we did reach out to see would they speak to us. Thank you for your message and the opportunity to speak to you directly. We're not in a position to come on the air, but would like to point out that the city centre is that if the city centre is to encourage small, unique retailers, then lots of things need to be addressed. Those things have been discussed several times on your show. We're sad to be leaving the city after over 24 years of trading. It has been emotional. Uh, reading all the kind and supportive messages from the people of Cork, we can never express how much that means to us. Thanks again. That's from the management at Bauhaus, who are closing. On... SUVs, Aidan says, Hi PJ, to that lady about the SUV and the other large vehicles, I'll give you one. All bus and truck drivers must do a CPC course every year. Six modules, it's compulsory to have one done every year. If not, you, can, you can't drive. My point is, how many accidents do you hear of buses and trucks? Very little, to be honest. So the people from 17 to 21 driving cars should be people doing these courses and then make them compulsory and learn to drive properly. That's from Aidan in Blackpool. And Pat says, Does Catherine not think we're paying enough for insurance and car tax? The population's getting bigger. New people coming into the country can drive here on their EU licence and having a clue about our roads. I've come across a few. The roads are a disgrace as well, with potholes everywhere. Thanks for that. Another price cut today from this new energy... Uh, retailer, you know. I don't know anything about them. They're brand new. They're offering fixed rates. They're sponsoring the Tommy Tiernan show. That's about as much as I know about them. But there really is a price war going on now because we had Board Gosh announced a price cut last week. Electric Ireland announced a price cut. Now, uh, you know. And we can only really benefit from a price war. Right or wrong, Charlie Weston from the Irish Independent. Good morning. PJ, right, as, as always. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, we, this is the second cut from this new player in the market this month. At the very start of January, uh, they welcomed in the new year with a price cut. They've now come down again. What Juno Energy are doing is it's a new player that people probably don't know about. They're advertising a bit. Uh, they, it comes out of the company that runs Prepay Power, which is a, you know, the, that's the old metered uh, electricity where you pay, uh, uh, you, 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 pay you, you, you pay the meter. You can yeah. either do it with coin-based or, or electronically but this is um you know uh, every two months pay a bill um and uh, they're just trying to undercut the, the rivals i mean this day last week we had electric ireland cu- cutting its prices that was followed up by board gosh the two big beasts in the market i mean electric ireland would have 1.1 million customers and then board gosh would have about 600,000 customers particularly gas customers so um, in reaction to their price cuts, which don't go through for a couple of weeks, by the way, mm. Uno Energy is reducing prices from today. It's, it, it says it will have the, the lowest unit rate for electricity compared with standard rates of others. It'll be down to about oh, just over 27 cents. That's a lot better than Electric Ireland, which is about 30 cents. Yeah. Um, it reckons it'll save, save the average electricity user about 500 euros a year, which would bring... Uh, a typical household's annual bill to about 1400 Now that's down from about 2000 last year. Yes, so 
prices are going in the right direction and if, as, uh, the more of this tit for tat price cutting we see the better obviously <laughs> how much how does this how much how does this uno energy model work you, you, you sign up for it and uh they kind of anticipate what your your use is going to be and to take it out in, in advance. That's the way they do it. It's heavily, uh, there's a heavy, heavy emphasis on the use of an app. Um, so it's quite a, a modern way of doing it. Um, and the idea is that, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you just, you, you know, you pay for it and you pay less than you would pay for the others. And uh, that's, that's what they're trying to do. They're just trying to, you know, an emphasis on app use and, 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 and show you, you know, what, what you're using and, uh, you know, you, you 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 pay a monthly amount or, or every two months or whatever in in advance, and yeah. uh, and then you know if 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 you've over or underused, I mean, it's adjusted accordingly. So, I mean, it's slightly different for, for than, than we're used to, but the fact that it's good value is is, is interesting. You know? mm. Do you think that? And like you said, it's their second one in a couple of weeks. Do you think it could force the big guys again? Well, I think the big guys are due to go again anyway. I mean, that's the indications I was getting from Paul Dean, who's a, a, an energy scientist there in UCC. He was telling me last week he expects another cut this 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 maybe this, the end of the summer, the early autumn, uh, because wholesale gas prices, which dictate the prices in the market, because uh, more than half of the electricity generated in the country is is from gas. Maybe not this weekend. We probably got a lot of uh, generation from wind. But um, uh, normally it's about more than half. Uh, so that the, the price of gas, wholesale gas in Europe, is the big di- dictator of what happens. Mm. And that has been coming down. It's down again today, I noticed, because, um, uh, you know, even though we have a storm, the, the, it's not as cold uh, the, this last day or two as it was at the end of last week. And uh, there's a lot of wind being produced across Europe and in Ireland, a lot of wind producing energy. So when wholesale prices come down, that should mean another cut. Um, you know, there is room for these guys to cut more. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they were telling us all last year they couldn't cut because they were locked into contracts when, when they bought wholesale uh, gas at high prices. They, 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 those those uh, contracts should have all unwound at this stage, yeah. and there is room for more cuts. So by the end of the year, we should have more cuts. So if it happens sooner than that, great. And, yeah. and the more the small players put it up to them, the, the better as well. It might make them think, you know. You, you and I spoke also a couple of times, Charlie, about the standing charge. Now, if you ask me, that was dibblement. That's the cost of yes. putting it through the pipe or through the line. Sure, that surely didn't in real terms go up at all, but yet they put the standing charges up through the roof. Yeah, there was a, you know, that was really outrageous. About two years ago when the energy crisis got really bad, a lot of companies, Electric Ireland, Borgosh, started increasing their standing charge. And you have no choice. You pay that, whether you, you know, you leave the lights on 24-7 or whether you use very little electricity. And some of the standing charges were as high as 700 euros a year. You know, 300, 400 euros would be quite common. It really depends on what kind of meter you have, whether you're on a rural rate, an urban rate. Uh, so it's very hard to say, every, you know, what, what anybody was on. But, yeah, they really whacked those up. Uh, and, and, and that was very controversial. The Consumers Association of Ireland accused the energy companies of profiteering, saying that was an outrageous thing to have done. But at least in the last two energy cuts we've had from the big players, Electric Ireland and Borgosh, they have been reducing their standing charges as well. And they're coming down by 7 8%. Uh, and, and that's necessary because it was a sneaky one. It wasn't a, wasn't a fair one. And the argument the companies were making was, well, we'd have to put the unit rate up even more if we didn't increase the standing charge. But it just seemed like a... Uh, an easy one for them. They, this is guaranteeing them to, to, to get money from from consumers mm. because uh, 
uh, you know, you just have to pay this and it doesn't vary and you can't do anything about it. I don't think, Charlie, that for a long time at least we're going back to pre-Ukraine and pre-COVID prices, are we, though? We're not, no. Um, you know, we're probably never going back there because, you know, everything has gone up in the meantime. Um, but at least it's coming back from where it was. Um, you, you take maybe before COVID, typical family would have, would have probably for electricity, would have cost them about maybe a thousand, a thousand euros a year or something, you know. Uh, that, that, that That's, you know... Uh, one thousand one hundred and it was the average electricity cost for a year in twenty twenty. You know that's you know mm. pre all the, the Ukraine in particular was the big thing. The invasion there sent wholesale gas prices through the roof. Up to last year, the average cost for a typical family of of, of a year's electricity hit two thousand, so yeah. almost doubled. Now it may settle down now at about fifteen hundred this year. And remember as well, we've got one uh, government uh, energy credit. We're due another two of those uh, in the next while, so that'll help as well. Yeah. That'll knock four fifty off the overall bill over the year. So yeah, which, you know, it helps. It, it, it helps. It will help. It, it'll help an awful lot, actually. Yeah, yeah. you know. So. If you take the government credit in, the fact that the prices are coming down, although some of them won't, you know, don't, don't be effective till the end of February, some of them, but um, it, it, it could mean that the bills will settle down at about uh, about a thousand euros. You know, right. the pity of it is these guys take so long. They, they're announcing price cuts. Board gosh, um, SSE, electricity, uh, uh, Electric Ireland, they're all at this crack now where they tell you we're going to cut prices, but it's six weeks, seven mm. weeks away. Mm. So, you know, the, the, with some very cold weeks to come yet, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, we're going to, you know, all through January, all through February to come before we get another reduction. So, um, that's a very unfair thing. Uh, and it's a new development. It's a pity that they're at that now. Yeah, we have a regulator that's supposed to look after all these things. <coughs> do they sit twiddling their thumbs watching Netflix or something, Charlie? Do they? Well, to be fair to the regulator, I mean, look, it's, it's a pretty non-interventionist regulator. They don't do a lot. And I think they could have done a lot more and given a lot more information to people in the last year or two. But to be fair to them, there's nothing they can do with pricing. They have no remit there. The legislation means that the energy companies are free to set their own prices. We have a kind of free-for-all in terms of pricing. Uh, the regulator does get involved in some of the the, the, the pricing at the back, at the, you know, the network charges, distribution charges, some of those complex charges. Uh, but on end-user or consumer prices, they, they don't have any remit to tell companies whether or not they can increase or decrease prices. Other countries do that, and maybe we should have done that. I can't believe we went through two years of an energy crisis and we didn't have a massive review of the whole setup of our of our energy market, which is dysfunctional and it's not yeah. working for consumers and it's expensive. We have some of the most expensive electricity in Europe. Why the hell didn't we look at why this is so? Uh, you know, I know it's expensive to transition to sustainable, renewable energy sources, but there are lots of reasons why the energy market is very expensive here and people do feel they're getting ripped off. And we've, lo- you know, there's still an opportunity to do it, but I don't know why we haven't done it by now. Really, the government should sort of take their finger out and look at why is this market so expensive? Why are we praying through the nose? And do we need to have a, a regulator who can have more say around when prices go up or down? As they do in Britain, in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Spanish is, are far more interventionist than we are. Why do we sit back and just allow free for all and end up with very expensive electricity and gas? Right. Charlie, thank you. Uh, as always, uh, Charlie Weston, personal finance editor of the Irish Independent. I remember a man rang me here from Spain. Uh, one day and we were talking about the price of energy and 
Now, in, in Spain, it's different because there's huge regions. But he said in his particular area of Spain, the providers need a license to provide. And when the prices started going up, the government or the regulator said, okay, okay, guys, this far and no further. You put them up this far and no further. You're already making a handy profit as it stands. So this far and no further. If they go up anymore, you can whistle for your license. That's the kind of regulation that you need, don't you think? 0818 96 96 96. We have two cars, Fiat 500, 1.2 litre, and a Ford Kuga, 2 litre diesel. The Ford is way more economical than the Fiat. It uses less fuel and is a lot safer, God forbid, in the event of an accident. And it's around the same size as a Focus anyway. Also, I have back problems and the seating position is far more comfortable for me for getting in and out height-wise. Kevin, on lights, they're great for the driver, but horrible for oncoming traffic. More so on rural roads where there are no streetlights. So when they come on you, or behind you, it's in a surround of complete darkness. There needs to be better EU regulation on this, according to Kevin. And, yeah, this, just check your lights when, if you're particularly in a car with these automatic adjusters, just put your hand under the steering wheel to the left, usually to the right, You'll find a little button or a little knob down there and that'll adjust your lights and they should be low down. They should be low down so you're not dazzling anybody. Coming back to the whole SUV uh, thing, I spoke to Catherine Conlon earlier on this morning and she was making the case for making it more expensive to drive and to park an SVU, seeing as 65% of all new passenger cars sold in Ireland in 2022 were SUVs. She describes it as a love affair with SUVs. The one thing that I don't have is a statistic on how many accidents, crashes that involve death or injury or whatever, actually involved an SUV. And without that, I'm kind of thinking, why would you turn on drivers of a particular kind of car? Like in Paris, they've upped the parking in central Paris now, it's €18 Euro an hour to park an SUV. And Catherine Conlon was making the point that actually that's something we should do here. Sandra, good morning. Um, good morning, PJ. How are you? I'm well. What do you, um, drive? What do you drive? I drive a uh, Skoda Octavia at the moment. Okay. Uh, but my cars normally have been a Toyota Corolla. Okay. Um, like, basically, what, I want to go on about the light first. Okay. Um, highly dangerous these LED lights. Um, once again, for cars coming towards the lights, um, they're blinding. And right. anybody with a light sensitive issue with their eyes, you know, obviously it's going to not be very nice for them. Um, also, um, you know, when LED lights come up behind you, yeah, again they're blinding. And I have, I've had terrible trouble, you know, getting used to it. You know, we I have often actually pulled in to leave them past me as well. Um, and actually, when they're coming up behind you, you know, from a distance, they flash. Yeah. Now, whether it's because the distance are coming closer to a car, I don't know, but they flash. Yeah. And they're kind of wondering, are they flashing me or things like that? Um, but, you know, that's, that's just about the lights anyway. But where the SUVs are concerned, it's just another money racket from our government. Mm, now there's there's no mom, plans to do it at the moment, to be honest, but it's just a, a theory that Catherine had. 
Um, no, 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 but it's it's just constantly, you know, it's, um, you know, they're, they're constantly looking for money for whatever reason, mm-hmm. you know. Do you, um, think, do you think there's a kind of a, a war going on on the, the motorist? Um, I don't think so. No? I think don't think so. Um, I think the biggest war at the moment would be maybe... Sorry, I'm just putting somebody in the car. Okay. Um, i just get in there and I can talk to you better. Um, no, I think really at the moment... Um, I think the biggest issue at the moment really is the with the, um, the electric cars. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're silent, they're deadly. Mm. Um, if you're walking along the road and one comes up behind you or, you know, comes along, you can't hear it. It That's actually true. sounds like, they sound more like a scooter than That's they do a car. And not that they're really, really quiet. I was in town last week and there was a Tesla past me and it passed me so close. And of course, I was listening to something or whatever. Didn't see a uh, sight or sound of it until it was almost on top of me. Thanks, Sandra, for that. You sound like you got a lot going on there. Thank you. Um, and a lot of lobbyists are saying that it's time to come down hard on SUVs and SUV drivers. I, I would say to those lobbyists, and I don't know who some of them are, show me a statistic that says that a certain number of accidents were definitely caused by SUVs. Show me a statistic that says death and injury was actually caused by SUV. Show me the percentage of death and injury actually caused by SUVs. And that is when I will say, okay, maybe we need to think about this. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six nine. And I say that as someone who drives a Dacia Duster and it's a wonderful little car. Wonderful car. And it's just a little bit bigger than your normal car. So there you go. Now to uh Barry Garvin to the daybreak shop down there. Uh Hassan Hi, what's Hi. been happening, sir? Uh, I'm good. How are you? Uh, there was a theft last night uh, around 4 o'clock. Uh, the theft was here for three minutes in the shop. And within three minutes, he actually broke our back door. Um, and we found on the CCTV, he was with the mask in his face. And he was with the hoodie, so we couldn't detect his face clearly. And he had a torchlight, so he ex- uh, we actually found the person here, but we couldn't guess like who is that. The face was right. not clear enough. Right. So, someone broke in. Did they get in the back door? Back door, yes. Back door. And then they were in the shop and they got cash. And did he get at the the GA Club lotto money as well? Uh, yeah. In local GEO, Belligarban GA Club, we sell their ticket and we keep this cash next to our teal. At the same time, we also do Celtic Tunners concert ticket that is happening on next month, 9th February. Yes. We also selling their ticket as well. And that money, we keep separate because this is not our money. We are not going through the till. So sure. this money also separate. And he another, got that too, did he? Yeah. And there was another uh, organization. is called uh, Belly Urban uh, Farmer's Show. They are selling their calendar in our shop. That sure. money we also keep in separate. So three different boxes. It was under the teeth. So the thief came in and he actually taking that money first. So he found the boxes over here. Now you got him on CCTV, but he had a mask on and he had a hoodie on. Yes, hoodie on. Yeah. And did he shine a light up into the camera as well? Uh, he, he had a light. He actually showing the you know the way on his way because the shop was dark. Uh, this is why when the light was on the camera because he couldn't see the face because the light was on his face almost. I see. So it was actually you know, sparkling something like that. I the see. reflection. Have the guards been up? Have you? 
uh, guard was here early morning. Uh, they are trying to find something, and there another guard will be here later on to take the fingerprint or something like that. And their investigation also they give us the number. If we find something, to let them know. Okay, he presumably wore gloves, so he didn't leave fingerprints. I uh, suppose. Yeah, he had the gloves as well, and he's very professional because he was inside the shop for three minutes only. So within three minutes, he actually take all the cash, and he was trying to find more cash beside the teal and then the cigarette machine as well. And he took some door cash. Also, we keep some cash for the you know the change. He also yeah. take that stuff and. Uh, he was trying to find something more cash, but he didn't. From take watching any the CCTV, Hassan, did, did you get the impression he knew his way around? He knew what he was looking for. Uh, he actually looking for the cash only. Yeah. He, he didn't touch any 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 product or any cigarette machine, anything. He just finding the cash. Just looking for cash. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I also I, this morning. Oh, and he also went to our safe drop. Uh, I found safe drop last night. I finish when I finish. It was different way. And I think he tried to open it, but he couldn't because it was very strong. But he broke our second till. Second till was closed because we are not using that till. But the till we use, we leave it open. This is why he just take from the cash from there. But the closed till, he tried to open and he, he didn't find anything, but he actually destroyed. Oh, okay. Okay. You're, you're not open today, I suppose. When, when do you hope to reopen? Open this morning. Oh, Our colleague opened at seven o'clock, but they just called me, and then I came yesterday. I came after. Oh, they discovered it. Did they? They, they discovered our 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 colleague discovered it. Yeah. I see. Because it was actually from the back door, but our colleague came through the front door. So after one hour, they found there is no cash on the field, and then they just called me, and then said, "Okay, I'm on the way." So I came here after. Okay. All right. Well, good luck in catching that devil, uh, whoever did that to the. Uh, Daybreak shop in Ballygarvin. That's Hassan. So he got in during the night, got in the back door, broke the back door, took cash, took all sorts cash from all sorts of different places. Didn't touch any product. Didn't touch anything else. Cigarettes or anything like that. Just took cash, whatever cash was stored in the shop. Caught on CCTV, but he had a hoodie on him and a mask. Of course, he did the devil, and he had uh, gloves as well. But that's Hassan. The guards are investigating and hope, he's hoping the guy can be found. This is an interesting conversation that has started and I'm happy to continue it. Um, really interesting one with Catherine Conlon and the stats that SUV ownership is much higher in Ireland than other European nations. It's a status symbol here. Families with children survived long before the SUV in Ireland. So that's just an excuse. Schools getting involved to encourage local families to walk or cycle who do a lot to help reduce traffic. My Volkswagen Polo comfortably transports three children. And that is from Laura. Fair enough, Laura. Thank you for that. We have a Hyundai Tucson. That was the best-selling car in Ireland last year, I think. They don't take up any more space than any other car. We have kids and need one for that reason. They're also safer. They're higher up. The kids are safer in an impact. Such bull from the government and pencil pushers. That is from... Dave, uh, yeah, and then imagine Paris, just like London, are increasing prices mainly due to emissions, especially London, where cars are banned around schools. That's legitimate. It's common sense. Children are small. Exhaust fumes are more concentrated closer to the ground. So it's fair to say they suffer more than us, says Kevin. What's the issue with SUVs? A two-litre diesel Ford Focus or a Volkswagen Golf and a two-litre SUV? Same thing. 
says Jim. And there's lots of stuff coming in on car lights as well and the effect of LED lights. Check your lights. Are they beamed a little bit too high? Because if you put your hand under the steering wheel, you'll find it in the instruction book for your car to adjust those lights up and down. Sometimes people's lights are just adjusted up too high or down too low can be as simple as that. I'm driving a 231 car. There's nowhere in the car to adjust your lights. Believe me, I've looked. I'm sick of people flashing me when I have my dipped headlights on, thinking I have my fools on. When I'm getting it serviced, I asked them to check the lights. They said they were not too high. We also have a small SUV, same make, and I never have an issue with driving that one, says Deirdre. This is one that might drag on a little bit for us, which would be good. 